Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. The third sermon in the series on Philippians I have titled Identity Crisis. I intended that title to be provocative and mildly questionable, and I hoped it would produce curiosity. Because you may know that identity crisis is a real thing in psychological terms. As a matter of fact, the word um, or the combination of those words was put into a formal psychological theory by Eric Erickson, a psychologist from Germany. Now, whenever you put a theory together concerning human interaction with other people and psychological interaction with those people and what it does to you, anything you do when you come up with a theory, it goes in multiple directions, right? So I'm quite certain Eric Erickson would not appreciate all the directions the term identity crisis is taken. But at its base, an identity crisis means that a person goes through something. Call it a phase of life. Call it a set of circumstances. Call it trauma. Whatever it is, that person goes through something that actually challenges their identity. And their identity is in crisis. 
As a matter of fact, there's another phrase or a couple of words put together that is uh, popular nowadays in psychological analysis of human nature. It's called identity displacement, which is a theory that suggests that when people are part of a diaspora, that is, when people are culturally established in one place and then dislocated either through a form of slavery or war or any number of other things, their identity is dislocated. It's displaced, and they struggle with who they are. Now, I want to bracket those comments and just leave them there. As they say, put it on ice for a minute. And think about the Apostle Paul. In prison, we got this wonderful little picture of a prison cell with bars. It might not have looked like that at all. might have just been a house, but that's the image. He's imprisoned, we know that. And in the first verses that were read this morning, you have a description that goes like this. Bad situation, amazing results. That's what you have. Verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read these verses all over again at certain points in the sermon. So listen to these words. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Bad situation, amazing results. Nobody wants prison, but if you're an apostle or a follower of Christ, you want these kind of results. What you want is that your life should point to Jesus Christ, no matter what the circumstances. So in this bad situation, prison guards, and this is very speculative. Let me say that to begin with. We don't know how long Paul was there exactly. We don't know if it was his last imprisonment, but I think it probably was. We don't know if he was chained to a Roman guard, but he may have been. What we do know is that prisoners frequently had rotating around-the-clock guards, which is probably likely that Paul saw numerous people in his confinement. Numerous people were given the job, the responsibility, and Paul thought, the opportunity to guard me. We don't know how many. You could speculate. You could come up with a number. You could conjecture on how many watches there are in the day and how many days he was confined and come up with a number of possible prison guards that came into his room to watch him. This we know. He was under guard. This we know. There were multiple people who came to watch him. And Paul is basically looking at those people in a way they don't look at themselves. And he's looking at those folks and he's saying, you're the prisoner. Number one, you're enslaved because you haven't been freed by Jesus Christ. And number two, you've got no choice but to be with me. <laughs> the Roman government said... Take care of that old man. And while you're with me, it's likely Paul thought to himself, I can't be quiet. Paul never could be quiet about Jesus. So Roman guards 
in Paul's presence heard about his story concerning Jesus. It's no doubt. Later on in this same book, chapter 4, verse 22, we hear a reference to something that makes us think that perhaps this is what was going on. The reference says, the saints greet you, especially those from Caesar's house. In other words, in this early stage of development, in Paul's proclamation of the gospel, somehow, some way, servants of Caesar, from the family of Caesar, who knows who they were, greeted the people in Philippi because they were believers. I suspect, though I don't know, that Paul was responsible for that. So Paul says in verses 12 through 13, I've got a bad situation on my hands, but look at the amazing results. Verse 14 continues that theme. It basically speaks of tough circumstances that actually increase faith. So now bad situation creates amazing results, and difficult circumstances, they create faith. Listen to verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Because I'm in change, change, tough circumstances, my faith has actually increased, not decreased. Their faith, watching me in change, has increased, not decreased. Their courage to share the gospel has increased, not decreased. They haven't run for the hills. They're not afraid. They actually see the power of the gospel in these circumstances. Paul says, this is amazing. I'm reminded of um, the words of Jim Elliott, that famous missionary who lost his life in an attempt to share the gospel with some native people in South America. He penned in his journal before he was killed these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep Life, you can't keep it. Material goods, they don't stay with you. He's no fool who gives those away and gains what he cannot lose. Do you hear the words of Jesus ringing behind Jim Elliott's ears? In his thoughts, in his prayers? If you want to gain life, says Jesus, you got to lose your own life for me and the gospel. Or what good is it to hang on to what you've got? It's no good at all. You can gain the whole world and then lose your own soul. What is more important than your soul? That was Paul's perspective. And it apparently was the perspective of those who watched him suffer. That's why it increased their faith. They had an otherworldly view of their own existence. 
The third phrase I would like to use to describe what you see in this passage is kind of coy. People are stupid and God's sovereign. I mean, you know, in a crass sort of way, that's exactly what Paul was saying. Let's read the words. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Sorry, how stupid is that? That's just stupid. To preach Christ out of envy and rivalry? Can you imagine anything more distinctly different than Jesus Christ and the gospel than that? Paul says it's true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here, put here, for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can start... Not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And because of this, I rejoice. In spite of Human silliness. That gives us a lot of credit. Envy and rivalry, human silliness. In spite of human silliness, let's be more direct. In spite of human sinfulness, Paul says, the gospel is being advanced. And for that, I'm delighted. You know, it's possible... Maybe better stated, it's likely that some of those people who were preaching the gospel out of rivalry or envy were the people who were responsible vicariously for Paul's persecution and execution. They certainly didn't do him any favors. They seemed to be enemies on the outside not friends on the inside. And now I get back to the beginning, this notion of an identity crisis. And in verses 19 through 26, I want you to identify with me two things. Identity loss and identity transformation. Think about those words and hear these. Verse 19, yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out to be for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether through life or through death. Now, if you thought when you heard the earlier words, I'm confident I'll be released, you have to read them through the prism of release that comes through life or through death. For me to live is Christ. 
and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Back to the identity crisis, let me say it in crass terms. Paul's lost his identity. Paul doesn't know who Paul is anymore. Paul has been so completely submerged into the reality that is Christ, he has no identity apart from Christ. That's what you see in these words. For me to live is Christ. For me to die, it's gain. Let me put other words in his mouth that he would have used on other occasions. For me to suffer is Christ. For me not to suffer is gain. No matter what I do, what I say, or what circumstances are in my life, it's all about Jesus Christ for me. I have no identity. I have been submerged to the identity of an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's lost his mind (laughs) in modern day terms. He's lost his identity. He can't even speak objectively about himself. Karl Barth, um, a theologian, understood this very well. And those, these words I'm about to read are not a direct quote from Karl Barth, but I will use a direct quote in a moment. I just want to read these words to make sure you understand what Paul's identity crisis is. He cannot speak objectively about himself and his situation because he has so surrendered himself to Christ that his whole identity is about the gospel. It's everything to him. Everything. Now, let's admit something, shall we? This is difficult for us to understand. And one of the reasons it's difficult for us to understand is because we're all self-centered people, right? Our identity is us. But there's another reason that it's difficult for us to understand. Because we live in a culture that is living and breathing a notion of individual rights and unlimited freedom. It's part of the air we breathe. It's part of the water we drink. It's part of our own identity. Individual rights 
in unlimited freedom. Here's what I want to say. I'm sure I'll be challenged on this, and I'm happy to accept the challenge. Scripture never speaks about individual rights. Ever. Scripture only speaks about individual responsibilities towards others and towards God. And however helpful individual rights are for any particular government structure, they are absolutely worthless when it comes to spiritual growth. Worthless, I say, worthless. And if you don't believe that, I challenge you to read this passage over every single day and see if you don't come to that conclusion. Paul was not interested in his individual rights. Paul was not interested in his unlimited freedom. Paul was only interested in one thing and one thing only. Jesus Christ. And everything ran through that prism. Everything about his life. Waking and sleeping, food, vocation, everything went through that. He can no more think about individual rights than a fish could think about what it was like to live out of water. Paul was submerged in Jesus Christ. So I've suggested that Paul has lost his identity. And now I want to suggest that he's gone through an identity transformation. Which is another way of saying his loss of identity is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He's gone through an identity transformation. And why does this happen? Why does it happen for Paul? How does he get there? Why? Here's the reason it happens. is because he realizes that the decision, the one he's talking about here, he realizes that this decision and every other decision has already been made for him by a sovereign God. Now, he describes the decision in a dilemma kind of way. He basically says, what should I do? Should I do this or should I do that? And you might think to yourself, he's actually struggling over which one he's going to choose. That's not what he means. What he means is in myself, I might want to choose this one sometimes. And in myself, I might want to choose that one sometimes. But it makes no difference to me. Because I'm so submerged into Christ that it makes no difference. Whether I live or whether I die, it doesn't make difference. Because it's all about Jesus Christ. Now I'll give you the direct quote from Karl Barth. He does not really need to choose at all. 
It is not Paul who decides. But the decision about him is made. The hand in which he sees both life and death. And from which he personally looks for death more joyfully than for further life is the very same hand. You know the hand, the hand of God is the very same hand that has appointed him an apostle. Paul lost his identity and his identity was absolutely transformed. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, Paul lost himself. And because he did, he found himself. I don't want to uh, demean this, but you know I love sports. So you can see I'm already demeaning it. Um, there's a lot of games I love. Uh, but since it's this season of the year, there's nothing going on except football. Well, I know there's NCAA basketball, but on Sunday, uh, when I leave church, I'll go home and I'll lay down on the couch and I'll watch a, fo- watch a football game until I fall asleep, which usually is about 10 minutes. And then, then I'll get ready for connection tonight. But I, I love watching football. And you know what's true about football? If you ever study, as I do, um, the history of football, you'll realize that football is not about the individual. I know it's a cliche. There's no I in team, you know. But really, in football, it's, it's really true. You might have your all-stars. It, it might be that the only way the team wins is because one particular person is really that good. Maybe. Maybe. The reason I say maybe is because I don't care who you are. On a football team, if you're really that good, you still can't succeed unless everybody else on the team is doing their part. You ever seen the movie Blindside? Watch it if you want to know what I'm talking about. An offensive lineman whose chief responsibility it is to protect the quarterback. Really, that's all he does? Yeah, it's all he does. Really, is it that important? There's no way the quarterback could ever do anything without his blindside. The signal caller in the middle. He never catches a pass only by accident. The wide receiver could be crushed at the line of scrimmage. He has a part to play. Every person on that field has a part to play. And when they play it perfectly, they actually lose themselves. They are just completely submerged into this gigantic thing called team. And when they win, they know that. And a great coach knows it best of all. Paul is like that. 
We think him of as a super apostle, the amazing quarterback. He thinks of himself as one piece of a grand puzzle, a design called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's just doing his part and he's actually trying to be invisible as to his self-will so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can advance. Paul's identity is transformed because the decision's already made, been made for him. And he steps into it. Paul's identity has been transformed because he experiences life no matter what the outcome is. It doesn't matter what the results. Paul experiences life. That's not to say that Paul would have preferred better circumstances. All of us would do that, right? If, if, he, if he thought, uh, I'd, I have a choice, I'd rather be in prison or with you, he'd say, I'd rather be with you. But that's not really the point. Because every experience of life, no matter what it is, has an outcome that is guided by God. The third thing that utterly transforms Paul is that his whole life, and you see it throughout his epistles, is based on the resurrection. His entire existence is based on the resurrection. That reality, the resurrection, that has already decisively happened That reality, which is a recurring event in everybody's life who receives Christ, not just when you say yes, but when you say yes again and again. That resurrection, which means deadness comes to life in your life, not because of you, but because of Jesus Christ. That resurrection that means when people die, They will be raised again by the power of God because of Christ's resurrection. That resurrection which means that all this crushed, broken world, not just the institutions and the individuals, but creation itself is going to be redeemed. Think Romans 8. Everything is groaning for that redemption. And Paul says, my entire life is about the resurrection Thus, my entire identity is about Jesus Christ. So I want to be honest about something. Um, Two somethings. The first something is, you may disagree, but I think it's hard to disagree. This wasn't always Paul's perspective on every day. He was human like the rest of us. There are times in the epistles, especially 2 Corinthians, where it looks like he's whining like a baby. Okay? Paul wasn't perfect either, and he wouldn't pretend to be. But he knows this is the center of his life. When he understands his own identity, he gets this. That's the first thing. Second thing is, I am light years away from this understanding. I don't mean intellectually, I just described it. I mean experientially, every day, I'm often light years away from this understanding because I'm immersed in self, not in Jesus Christ. I know I'm immersed in Jesus Christ. It's all about me. 
But with every decision and every reaction and every love and everything I do, I'm not always immersed in Jesus Christ. I'm very often just subsumed within my own self. (laughs) So, if that's true for you, and to a certain extent, I'm sure to a less extent for Paul, that it's not always that way, what's the pathway to this perspective? How do you get there? And maybe I should have spent more time on this in the sermon, but this is the conclusion. How do you get that perspective? One, through obedience. Just obedience. Let me quickly paint a picture for you. Obedience produces perspective. Here's the picture. Suppose I told you that there was this beautiful waterfall. And apart from a hovercraft or helicopter, the only way to see this waterfall in all its grandeur is to take a particular path. And when you take that particular path, from that vantage point at the end of the path, you will experience the exquisite beauty of that waterfall. Now, that's not necessarily obedience in the same way. But let me suggest a parallel. Christ says, I want you to experience life, abundant life. And there's only one pathway to it. It's to follow me. You can try to find abundant life and try to find another path, but I promise you, the absolute exquisite life that I'm talking about is only coming if you follow me. And when you follow me, then, and only then, will you have this perspective. And your perspective on occasion will be just glorious. And on other days, it'll be cloudy. But I promise you, this perspective will only come when you follow me. So how do you find this perspective? Obedience. How do you find this perspective? Surrender. The most unnerving thing that ever happened to me was a few years ago. I was having trouble with my computer. And I was working with somebody who made the computer. And I was on the phone. And this individual said to me, Sir, if you wouldn't mind, could you just take your hands off the keyboard? Seriously? (laughs) He said, it's going to seem a little weird, but your mouse is going to be moving around and I'm controlling it. And the guy was like 10,000 miles away in another country. I took my hands off the keyboard. And he fixed it. 
I don't need to play that image out too much, do I? Take your hands off the controls, steering wheel, the keyboard. It's not your life anyway. Surrender. And then maybe you'll have this perspective. So obedience, surrender, and finally faith. It means you have to believe and trust that there is a sovereign God who is working with the unseen reality to shape the events in your life to bring himself glory, to advance the gospel, and to give you abundant life. You've got to have faith to believe that. Not just faith to believe that God is working in spite of difficult circumstances, but faith to believe that he's using difficult circumstances to accomplish his will in and through you. My friends, that takes faith. And you know as well as I do, tomorrow that kind of faith is going to be challenged. Just remember, take your hands off the keyboard. Surrender, obey, and have faith. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God. Um, you give us more than we ever could have imagined. And certainly more than we deserve. And one thing we know we do not deserve is grace. And that's one thing we know that you give us in abundance. So we pray for your grace and mercy. We pray you will infuse us with your love. And that you will give us glimmers of insight. Just enough to keep us going, Lord. Glimmers of insight about what you're doing in our life. And when you do, Lord, we'll do our best to follow. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.